This podcast is brought to you by Odyssey. Engineered and manufactured in Southern California, Odyssey's award-winning LCD headphones combine the latest innovations in material science with precision craftsmanship. Find out why some of the world's leading sound professionals can now produce, mix, and master anywhere with Odyssey headphones. Learn more at odyssey.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. First interviewed in Tape Op some 20 years ago, Jack and Dino has been a staple of the Northwest music and recording scene for over 30 years. He describes himself as the guy in the engine room during the early voyages of the battleship Grunge in the late 80s, and many of the early releases that put Seattle label Sub Pop on the map have his name on them. Artists like Mudhoney, Nirvana, Tad, Soundgarden, L7, Mark Lanigan, and Hot Hot Heat are just a few of the many bands that Jack has guided through their recordings. I caught up with Jack at Seattle's Soundhouse Studio, and we carried on as only two old friends can. Enjoy! Well, this just conversation is going to be awesome. We're just going to ramble around. That's really... A- uh, that's something that when I built the studio, I was like, people are like, can you get automation on your console? You know, this at this point in time, this console automation is something you really need anymore. I never needed it in the first place. <laughs> I never needed it. I, I hated console automation. Yeah. It drove me insane. It slowed me down so much. Right. And, you know, every board had like this its learning curve for these creepy DOS-based programs that they were using for the automation. Right. And I know people who swore by automation, but it's because they like worked in... They worked on one console all the time right. and they got used to it and they were able to fly through it. And me, it drove me insane because I don't like having to work real time. I was over it as soon as I got done with, with, with analog. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, okay, I got to like run through the track. Okay, now we're going to do all the mutes. Okay, now we're going to do this. and that. You know, and it's mm-hmm. it's just yeah. the whole thing. And, you know, and I was always working in different studios and it was right. like, okay, which one do I have to learn now? You know, okay, now I'm not going to use this console again for a year, so I'll completely forget the audio. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the last time I was confronted with an SSL, and it was a Pro Tools system, and I realized, okay, the Pro Tools is automation. Why do I need to have this stupid antique console right. chasing this Pro Tools system? So I just said, turn the automation off. Mm-hmm. Uh, turn everything off. We're just going to use the console, the SSL, in snapshot mode now for this record. Right. I'm going to do all the automation in Pro Tools. And... That was kind of an eye-opener because it worked really good. Mm-hmm. And I had another revelation when I did that. Um, this was in 2001. It was one of the last times I mixed through an SSL console, which, like I said, I always hate them. But <laughs> I decided I would A-B the EQs inside Pro Tools with the EQs on the console. Yeah. And specifically, I was using McDSP EQ on everything. Mm-hmm. I'm a big McDSP fan. And... Um, so what I would do is I would set up the mix on the SSL for a couple hours using the onboard EQs. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, here it is. I'm using the little compressors and the EQs and everything. And I got it sounding pretty good. And then I turned all the EQ off on the board. And then I took a break. I came back and I proceeded to instantiate the EQ plugins on all the channels in Pro Tools. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to work away on the drums. And yeah. you know, and I worked away through it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get everything sounding the way I want to one channel at a time so i got all the eqs the way i wanted them to sound inside 
Pro Tools. Yeah. And then <coughs> I A-B'd it. The internal mix I had going in Pro Tools versus sending all the channels out through the SSL. And I, I called the drummer in. I said, okay, let's listen to these. And I think it was specifically the drums I was working with yeah. for the most part. And it was no contest. You know, we listened to the, through the board versus yeah. me doing it with all the EQs in Pro Tools. And we picked the digital one hands down. It was, was it like, still oh coming God. down the channel strip? It was coming down the channel strip right. of the SSL with all the EQs turned off. Right, right. It was literally right. my experiment was I took a whole afternoon right. in the studio. It's one of those records I did in Brazil where I had like a month in the studio. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm going to experiment. And uh, yeah, it was kind of an eye opener. I was like, yeah. okay, this digital EQ thing is, is mature and I can trust it. And from then on, you know, I did the rest of that record without using any of the EQ on the console. <laughs> it was literally just a huge um, summing bus. Right, right. And the SSL is good for that. Right. The summing is great. And the, the noise is low and, you know, whatever. It's got the onboard compressor, which I don't use. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and then it was only a matter of time before I was dragged kicking and screaming in, into the mixing entirely in the box. Right. Mode, which is where I'm at now. And I have to give Barrett Jones credit for... Really? Uh, encouraging me at that because he's been doing it far longer than I have. I, I talked yeah. to him a few years ago and, oh, yeah, I've been mixing in the box forever. I was like, really? <laughs> and then, you know, I know Adam Casper's been doing mm -hmm. it. And, it, you know, he wasn't exactly a, an early, you know, he, he was like me. He was an old analog guy who kind of got dragged into the digital world. And yeah. anyway, here I am now. People send me stuff to mix from like Italy and places. I Someone sent me stuff from Belarus a couple of months ago. <laughs> and um, yeah, they just send you Pro Tools yeah. files, and you have your way with them, and send them back, and they tell you what to ch what to change. Yeah, yeah, know. it's it's a different world with that. When you when you talk about that, then what's the purpose of the studio at, at a certain point? You know, if you're mixing in the box and. Well, you still need a studio. You need the infrastructure of the mics and the preamps and the oh, headphones yeah. and all that stuff. You need all that. Well, for tracking. That if for but, tracking, you need all that infrastructure, absolutely. really. And I have to say, it's much easier to get a headphone mix on an, on a big analog console. Right. You can just there's all the right. auxes, and you can just dial, dial, dial. You know, and rather than doing it with a mouse where you're looking at one oh, control at a yeah. time. Yeah. But even then, there's you know, I've I've seen um, people I know who come in here to Soundhouse and they do their whole thing in the box including the headphones right I remember the first time I saw that I was like watching very carefully like wait a minute are you really doing this <laughs> really and they just immediately set up like a bus ABCD yeah. and they got the whole they had a template it was all ready to go yeah. loaded it into Pro Tools got the headphones going in no time and I thought wow okay so it's one way to work I know but I like <laughs> I like having the old console yeah to, to work through, at least for tracking. It just makes everything yeah. so much faster. And, I mean, the preamps are good. Yeah. You got right. that. I mean, you've got at least got these mic preamps, if, if nothing else. <laughs> but when it comes to mixing, do you do projects where you work on it a bit at home or other places, or do you always work in the studio? If you're, uh, if you're... I'll work in the studio, and if I'm working in the box in the studio, I'll double-check it at home. Right. Because I have a living room set up that's like, it's got these speakers that actually I've been mastering on these old KRK 9000s, mm -hmm. which are the same speakers John Golden used to use. Oh, funny. And I have them set up in my living room. And yeah. not the same, well, the same make. I mean, yeah, he yeah. obviously has his own. I got them from somewhere else. Yeah. But um, so I always, you know, I was running my house and double check the mixes in That's there. Cool. Like, oh, wait, the kick's too loud. Oh, tweet, tweet, you know, <laughs> uh, which I think is crucial. I mean, some people run out to their cars. 
but my Buick yeah. only has a cassette deck, so that's a little... That's, <laughs> yeah, printed over the cassette. Yeah, that's no longer practical. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> that's what I did in the 80s. <laughs> oh, yeah, we all did, didn't I we? I would run out to the car, we'll make a cassette, you know. Great, oh, shit, it's playing at the wrong speed. Yeah, the great thing about that was you could record the next song, you could record back over it. Oh, yeah. Whereas once people started making me burn CDs, burn CDs is like throwing the garbage, and you'd have like a stack of dead CDs. Oh yeah, at the end of the session. I'd always like, no, give me back that CD. Not that's not the yeah. final mix. No, yeah. give me that. We're throwing that away. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. When you be paranoid, I'd be snapping them in half so nobody tried to play them. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> so crazy. Um, but I, I was thinking the other day, I was talking to Susan Rogers, who was in town to uh, being interviewed. Who worked? She worked with Prince and all this stuff, mm-hmm. and she teaches at Berkeley, and she said. That she uses, um, I think you put it on your website about uh, tape decks and different uh, how this, ta- tape deck, tape this, response and all that kind of. Oh stuff. yeah, all those curves I took yeah. back when I was doing a lot of analog. Yeah, and she said that that, that really it's something she teaches. She, she presents that to all of her students in a recording program, and and she she wanted to say thank you for oh. putting that information out there. Well, you know, I mean. Um, Colin McDowell ended up using that in because he has a tape. One of his one of the old McDSP plugins is mm-hmm. called Analog Channel. Right. It's one of the original four plugins he right. came up with like fifteen years ago or yeah. something, and it's meant to be a tape simulator. Yeah. And one of the things he did is he actually took the graphs off my website and put them in the instruction <laughs> manual for no the way. very first version of that plugin. And yeah. you know that was way a long long time ago. He gave me a free copy of the plugin. Yeah. But. Um, I, I need to update that because the graphs I made, I made in like, you know, the late 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so that they're super low res now. They're just oh, yeah, tiny yeah. little gifs, you know. Yeah, right. I really should like remake those because they're like, they're they're so small. But whatever, that was those days. I'm not really a big web maintenance yeah. guy anymore. I can barely maintain my website. <laughs> I just don't have time. Oh, the I know. The internet just wears me down. It's It's got, you know, I think at the beginning of the, you know the, the the internet revolution or whatever. I think the promise or the hope was that you could have sites like say your Indino.com. I got site, my own dot com, man. And that, and that people would really gravitate towards that and would utilize all these unique sites on the web, and it turned yeah. into Facebook instead. I know. And you know, kind of it's, like, it's a sad thing. Yeah. You know, we we find that like with the tape op website, it's really hard to drive people to it. They'll look at some stupid thing on Twitter. or instagram or facebook and make comments all day but to get them to go to a real website that's full of information is difficult and that's just fascinatingly terrifying it is because they're all sort of the the whole like social media thing has become so okay you've got their app on your phone it's constantly dinging i don't have any apps on my phone (laughs) i never even registered my phone with google actually i have an android that is not associated with a google account you can do that you just when you get the phone yeah you just don't ever register it with google with an email address or anything else yeah so at&t knows i have this phone but google doesn't (laughs) they don't have a i don't even use gmail except when yahoo mail is down yeah, I may have to change that at some point, but I don't know. I'll use Proton Mail or something else. Uh, yeah, but you know, so as a result, I can't put any apps on my phone. But I don't want any apps on my phone. It's like it, it's dry. Texting is enough. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, it's it's too much. I mean, we're if you think about the course of a day, you should be getting things done, not not looking at your phone, constantly checking the phone. <laughs> the yes. jobs come through emails. Yeah, they do. They really don't. They really you do. know, Or they come to you directly yeah, from nobody, people you know well. You yeah, know? it's like if people call you, they're like, hi, do you make records? It's <laughs> yeah. just like, oh, Can I come who, in and sing tonight? Who wants to take this call? <laughs> Anybody? Some intern? Somebody? <laughs> you want this gig? <laughs> I remember one, my friend was working for me, uh, Joanna, who plays with Stephen Malkmus, 
and she was working there and she picks up the phone and she goes, no, we don't do demos, hangs it up. I'm like, oh my God, he might want to be a little more <laughs> A little more pleasant. just a little careful. <laughs> well, I mean, I kind of say the same thing. Everything, in like 30 years of doing this, almost nothing I've ever done has stayed a demo. Right. I mean, it's like literally, even back in the 80s and 90s, like everything I touched got released eventually by some indie label somewhere, mm -hmm. you know. And I, I really got to the point, I was like, well, I don't do demos. I mean, I treat everything like it's going to be right. released. You know I what mean, I mean? It's, it's like calling it a demo is just kind of like dooming it from the start. Okay, <laughs> we're just going to make a shitty recording. Can we pay you to make a shitty recording for us that we don't care about and call right. it a demo? I'm like, well, it doesn't no. make any Why sense. would I do that? That's not what I do. I mean, you know, look, you sang it badly. Sing it again. Let's get it good. So, but, you know, yeah. and the few times I've done demos, I've ended up decades later, I've ended up having to go back and remix them because somebody decides they want to release it anyway, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, that's a so, lot of work. You were just mentioning before we started rolling this that you got Green River and... and all these bands you're doing, you're remixing old recordings. Remixing ancient recordings yeah. I did, including so-called demos we did like 30 right. years ago that actually sound pretty good now. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't do demos. I just I treat everything <laughs> like it's an album. You know? On the other hand, I do work fast if I have to. Yeah. And I tell people, because they say, well, how long do you think we need? You know, which is, how do you answer that? I don't know how to answer that. You know, I say, yeah. well, look, I can work fast if you can, but, you know, there's two wild cards. It's the drummer's a wild card and the singer's a wild card. It's like, yeah. you know, the drummer could take, like, he could get all your drum takes done in a day or it could take him a week. Depends on how good he is. Right. And vocals, they can take an hour or a day or a week, you know? Yeah. It's like, what kind of singer are you and what are you, what are you demanding of yourself right. while you do your vocals, you know? And are you right. going to sing scratch vocals all day and then try and do the vocal takes at night? Yeah. It usually doesn't work. You fried your voice out doing the scratch vocals, you know? There's a lot of wild cards and you have to explain yeah. to people, no, come back later and do the vocals, yeah. you know? Don't plan it so you're going to sing all the vocals on the last day of recording. Yeah, okay, now please. we're done with everything else. Let's get the vocals done. Yeah. And the you know, three or four songs in your voice is shot. Yeah. It's like, no, yeah. break it up. And I tell people, let's just do a couple days of tracking and then see where it goes. Yeah, You know, because you can't say... They, records come in all shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. And people ask me this constantly with mixing. They say, how much do you charge to mix 10 songs? Yeah. And I just sent someone that email this morning. I said, well, I need to know the dimensions of it. <laughs> how, what's the, you know, how long is all of it? How many minutes of music yeah. is it? And there's one dimension. And the other dimension is how deep is it? Is it like 20 tracks or 80 tracks yeah. for each song? Because back when it was analog, you knew it was going to be 24 <laughs> tracks. You'd be like, okay, more. we've got like 40 minutes of material recorded on 24 track. And you could give, you know, I could give at least some idea of, oh, I can probably do that yeah. in three or four days, you know, whatever. But now it's like, well, I don't know, you know, send me the most complicated song as a zip file. You don't even need to send me the, yeah. the audio file. Just send me the Pro Tools, the PTX look document. At it. Yeah. I'll just look at it and see how far it scrolls on the screen. <laughs> and then I'll give, and I've even turned things down. I just yeah. look at it, it's scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I'm just like, Oh, my life's too short for this, you know. Yeah. No, get, I, you know, somebody will make a nice mix of this, but it doesn't have to be me. Yeah, that's, you know I, mean, I mean, when things get, I've worked on things up to like 150 tracks or something. I would go insane. I just but have no patience because it takes you like, yeah. you're like days of just looking at it and studying it to try and understand what's there and what oh, the yeah. intent was behind it. This, you know, I was kind of, we were kind of adding to stuff that was pre-recorded, so we were kind of producing Well, it. see, if you had done the tracking, Some you already the knew what it was at least. Yeah, that's, that's a different story. You've already got it in your head. 
adult time. We had a time. plan. We had a plan. But if someone I mean, just like throws oh, yeah. it at you that somebody else recorded, oh, it's, you don't uh, know the relative importance of these like yeah. 75 guitar tracks. It's like, no. well, which one is the, how do I know what? Yeah. Well, I mean, it could be it's this way. It could be this really way. It could be this difficult. way. What do I do with this? You know, how long is it even going to take me to form an opinion? Yeah. And, you know, times like that, it's like, you know, <laughs> you can't afford me. Sorry. <laughs> I, you know, that, that's it's really, you got to say no or get away from it. Well, you've got to have a life. So I, you're, you, I remember a good handful of years ago, I think we were talking and you were like, I'm done, just done with tape. It just, as far as a tracking medium and such. Even thinking about analog tape just fills me with inertia at this point. <laughs> and people might think, you know, based on, you know, how all of us started, you know, was working on oh, tape. Oh, yeah. We were all cutting it with razor blades right. and the whole deal. But I mean, the, I remember doing insane edits to, like, drum fills to, like, mm -hmm. shorten them where you're, like, <laughs> trimming, like, like an eighth of an inch of, of, yeah. of tape out of the two-inch tape before right. each drum hit because okay. the drum fill slowed down a little bit. Right. You know what I mean? You're marking oh, it with, God. like, the grease pencil and then you're slight. It's just, ah! <laughs> no! Terrifying. No, thank you! I think it's interesting that people might think that we... You know, they grew up work, starting working in that way that we'd have more Nostalgia. romantic vision of it or something. But, you no. know, I think, well, I remember talking to you and I was just, geez, the, you know, some of it was just the sheer drudgery or um, tedium tedium of, of, of having to try to make things happen that were very difficult to do on tape. Yeah, and also having to, like, wait for the machine to rewind. <laughs> okay, hang on. We'll do another take. Yeah. Oh, I overshot the mark here. The yeah. Okay, wait. It's chasing it. Okay, now we're at the... Okay, now... Oh, shit. I didn't punch in quite at the right moment. Oh, God damn it. We have to record that track again. Oh, yeah. And, oh, I hit a race on the wrong channel. Oh, bummer. <laughs> no kick drum. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, and you only do that once in your career. And yeah. it's usually early. And it's it was for you... me. It was, like, literally within the first couple months of me recording, oh, yeah. I erased somebody's vocal track by mistake. Oh, God. It's like you never do that again you know <laughs> yeah you really the worst is the uh flipping the tape over to do backwards stuff ah! and, and forgetting with forgetting the... which track is which you got to be very careful when you do the backwards thing that you're re recording on the correct channel oh yeah oh my god yeah i think that happened to me the first time i did it and then yeah never like, never again oh god oh no we only have one overhead it's yeah, not right, right 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 okay yeah let's you yeah, know let's not go there yeah we could make a whole podcast out of um engineering errors <laughs> It would be brutal. <laughs> Maybe a, a, a There'd be a lot of anonymous rate. anonymous quotes, actually, I think. You know? We won't say whose record this was done to. No, no, which which mistake. released record had the monos, the, the overheads in mono <laughs> when they should have been stereo. Ooh, forgot to pan them. Oh, my God. You know, things yeah. like that. There's a lot of things that are just like, it's like, you know, the scalpel is like left inside the patient. <laughs> After, I think nobody's so. gonna know <laughs> i mean you know you've had that one that you just mentioned like you're sitting there and you print the mix and you look over and you're like oh my god i oh, forgot good. i monoed the i forgot the kick. i monoed the overheads because i was checking phase yeah and right, I didn't put right. them back oh, you know and you, no one's ever gonna hear Oops. it and no one does oh my god you know, like hmm. But yeah, that happened to me once in like 1986. <laughs> it was a single. Nobody ever cared, right? Know, but it was like one of those things that you just don't don't forget. Like, oh, don't do that again. Yeah, <laughs> write myself a note. I mean, I think that's recording and producing and and running studios and doing all the things. There's so many details to the tasks at hand that I think it's really you know that's one of the things that maybe people forget when they're starting out and learning is that. You're going to have to know all these different th things. You've got to keep, keep track. track of it. You've got yeah. to keep track of like 20 or 30 
detailed signal paths. Yeah. Both going in and coming back out of the machine that you're you're recording on. Yeah. There's all this signal path options and there's the headphone paths and there's just there's you've got to keep a lot straight in your mind. Your your brain has to encompass this elaborate yeah. structure that you create in order to 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 have a successful recording session. There's all these, I mean, you know how to do the patch bay, you'll be just like every patch cord will be used for some yeah. sessions, you know? Oh, yeah. Every one of those patch cords represents a decision that you made and that you have to keep track of. Yeah. Uh, it could come loose, too. It could, they could yeah, lose like, contact. Right? Like, oh, it's dropped 60 dB. Shit. Wait, <laughs> exactly. wiggle it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. And then and the whole thing, and the, the whole problem-solving thing that you have to be very good at to keep yeah. a session running. If something happens, you got to solve it. Mm-hmm. to keep the energy going you can't have the band standing there with headphones looking at you while you're solving a problem you got to be able to like okay we're patching around that okay wait a minute yeah. let me get you another cable okay another headphone <laughs> yeah here it is you know and you just got to try solving problems on the fly yeah. so that your problems don't become their problems that's true you know they have yeah. to it has to be as transparent for the band as possible so that you know and i'm happy when the band after the session comes in and says man that was the easiest recording session we've ever had right. that was great you know and i'm just like oh yes yeah. all right it worked yeah you're, you're you're trying to hide the you know stuff behind the curtain you know well, yeah that, that they like, shouldn't have to watch me so yeah. they shouldn't mm-hmm. have to watch engineer drama oh yeah you know what i mean oh shit that thing blew up what do we do i mean i've rebiased people's amps in the studio yeah. i've resoldered <laughs> things i've fixed people's you know gear i'd be like wait wait, wait let me intonate your guitar i'll do it like five minutes it's done you know okay now yeah. we can record the guitar it'll be in tune you know yeah. and it's just like problem solving yeah and um and you got to be quick because they're paying you by the hour, and their energy is only going to last so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's there's a lot to it. You know, and uh, you know when you get the interns in here and they've been to school or whatever, it's how do you you just got to throw them in the deep end of the pool, <laughs> and then they make the mistakes, and then they learn from them. <laughs> yeah, I know. Ah, you know, give the clients a discount. You yeah, know, don't be afraid to charge nothing if you feel like things didn't go well. Yeah, you know, that's true. Honestly, you can't take people's money unless you're you're feeling like you're doing a good job. I mean, part of the thing is being graceful at this, and 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 leaving a good impression, like you said, like people saying that, oh, that went so smooth or something. You know, the things that you need as a producer engineer is like good word of mouth and happy clients you know yes you know sometimes it's not so much i mean i feel like my early recordings were not so much like great fidelity or anything but i worked with bands that people cared about and and i and i made everyone as happy as i could in the moment yeah right you know exactly and uh, that's that's how people talk why they talk about you you know or they want you to work on things because of those those connections when's the last time you had a business card oh i got them but do you yeah but you know i hand them out occasionally but i haven't had a business card in decades yeah except Stu hallerman for some reason made me some business cards as a joke once they were cute <laughs> had some goofy thing on them but i mean i actually used those for a few years i don't know he was somewhere where there was a business card machine that's funny but uh <laughs> I vaguely remember we had some at Reciprocal Recording when we first opened. Mm-hmm. I never used those. And now I just I haven't had a business card in so long because it's just word of mouth anyway. Yeah. Why do I need to, you know, I mean, if someone if someone remembers my name, I just say, go to my website and there's like instructions <laughs> on how to contact me. You know what I yeah. mean? If you know my name, you already know my website. So Yeah, that's uh, easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you end up working with the, the Soundhouse and how did that come around? This place... Um, 
Well, Scotty Crane, who built the studio mm-hmm. in 92, uh, from the ground up, actually, this was this building was, it's not a repurposed warehouse. Wow. It was built to be a studio right from the get-go. Yeah. I mean, this was just the backyard of that house. Mm-hmm. Um, he built the place in 92, and, and back in the 90s, he somehow managed to find this niche of recording a lot of industrial bands. And he got, mm-hmm. like, the skinny puppy guys would come down. Nice. From, there's some guys who'd come down from uh, Vancouver, BC, and record here mm-hmm. all the time. And this is before people had home studios. Right. You know, the early 90s, he had a lot of business where people would come in here and they would pay, like, top dollar for um, for studio time. And then toward the, you know, around after the year 2000, his business was totally tailing off. And he was like, right. Jack, what do I do? And I said, look, you got to lower your rates. This is not the era that it used to be. People don't have that kind of money. The right. budgets have dried up. The grunge explosion is... Over with the circus has left town. Everybody's got home studios. You got to drop yeah. your rates by half, and I will bring you some business. Yeah, and it worked. I, he said, "Oh my God, you saved my business." You know, he just oh, had to. Cool. <laughs> you know, it's just it was a business reality. You know what I yeah. mean? You can't charge eight hundred bucks a day anymore for a studio. Right. You know, at least not if you want to have lots of business. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, so you know, and then uh, and then when Hanzik Audio, Chris Hanzik decided he would just go for a, a mastering thing entirely, and he, right. got, you know, the business, the building that he had down in South Ballard, actually, some developer, somebody, somebody came along. Anyway, he lost the building, and he just yeah. said, "That's it. I'm just going to do mastering from now on." So I didn't have private radio to record in anymore. I didn't have Hanzik Audio anymore, uh, and so I moved all my business up to to Soundhouse here. Yeah, and then eventually the house that is in front of the studio came up for rent, and I thought, well, you know, what could be, that could be convenient, you know? So I've been renting the house in front of the studio now yeah. for a decade, and uh, that's amazing. Yeah, and kind of keeping it running. Scotty doesn't own it anymore. A guy named Mike Sebring owns it, but mm-hmm. he's he's great and just you know he's oh it's not broken don't fix it you know. Gotcha. So uh, we keep the place going, and Steve Fisk lives up the street and he's right. been he, he comes about once a month and does something because right. he does a lot of like he'll get the band in here and do the loud stuff, stuff. and then go to his home studio and right. you know hack away at it and mix it at home kind of thing yeah so and that's, that's a model a lot of us didn't see coming or, or well not say i say we probably knew it but a lot of people that were running bigger studios didn't see that coming no because you don't yeah. need that giant infrastructure for mixing and, and you literally need two, you or, need like yeah. two speakers and a computer at this yeah. point in order to mix yeah. and, and a room big enough to not have standing waves. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, all that stuff with the giant tracking room and, you know, yeah. all the soundproofing and everything, well, it's irrelevant to mixing. Yeah. So it's like two separate <laughs> functions. Right. You have the tracking studio with the square footage and the, the acoustics and the, right. the, the space and the headphones and all that stuff. And then you've got the mixing studio and they can be completely separate. Right. So, you know... The so-called big studios, I think, are, you know, their main advantage is for tracking, really. Mixing yeah. is like, you know, you're paying for all that stuff while you're, all you're doing is using the control room. So <laughs> I, I could see the... Yeah. Yeah, you know. So the studios that are still around are, you know, doing a lot of tracking. Right. And I mix in this control room all the time because I'm very, very used to the acoustics. Right. Are there other engineers that work out of here? Is it? It's a. Oh, is is the door open for freelancers? It is. Yeah, freelancers are welcome in here. Yeah. If they, you know, usually maybe we give them a discount on their first day that they come in. He's like, you know, they got to learn. Learn. Yeah. They'll, you know, give them an intern or whatever to make sure they don't get in trouble. And I mean, I'm renting the house next door. Yeah. So, I'm like, here's my cell number. If you get in trouble, <laughs> I'll run over. You know, I'll run over and, and you know, <laughs> square it away. But uh, I, you know, the other day I was like, oh good, I'm gonna do this podcast with Jack, and I'm like, you know, who who interviewed him for tape op? 
<laughs> it was I don't me. Know if it was you actually? Like <laughs> it was me. Twenty looked, years ago or something? Eight, nineteen years ago. Ninety-nine. What? We put it out in ninety-nine. Really? Yeah. I don't know, we're due for an article. I think. I think so. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> and we can't talk about Nirvana, please. Uh, who? What who? Band yeah. Is thank that? you. What band? I don't know. I have no yeah. idea. Oh, who were they? Um. No. <laughs> you know, it's been talked about. Tell me about it. <laughs> I read that article today on about reciprocal. And, uh, Where was it? Um, it was in. It was online. Some local thing, I think. Like it's a wow. It was okay. a thirty-year anniversary or something. Of oh Jesus! Oh, all right. Probably the northwestgrunge.com or some yeah. such, some such thing where they every little anniversary comes up. They always yeah, they get uh, excited. Yeah, they do. Because actually, <laughs> I think they may think that the anniversary of Reciprocal was June first uh, of eighty-six. That yeah. may have been the day we opened. Although I thought maybe it was July first. Uh, really? I'm gonna have to go back and look at the log sheets. Actually, oh my god, because <laughs> ah, they might be off by a month. Wasn't it? I don't think they even got the history right. Cause it wasn't a triangle before that. It was triangle, yes. Yeah, and I, I was just thinking about that. I was like, well, different people, different gear, different yeah, owners. I mean, it's know. always different. It's a space, you know. Yeah. It's interesting that a space keeps getting used, passed I, along. <laughs> I still have the nameplate that was on the door that says Triangle Recording. Oh my gosh, it's sitting in my kitchen up on the wall. That's pretty funny. It's pretty hilarious, actually. They, they left, like, stationery and stuff. I still have a few pieces of Triangle stationery sitting around somewhere. Oh, yeah, Triangle God. was a funny story. The reciprocal building is this wedge-shaped, like, pie-shaped yeah. triangular building down in, in the sort of Freelard area between Ballard and Fremont. Yeah. It's still there. I think Chris Walla has been running it for a long time. I don't know if he's yeah. still the guy running it, but I think he is. Last time I was there, he had done a lot of work. He had done a lot that. of work on yeah, that building, really which nice. is kind of shocking for a building that I don't think he actually owns. Yeah, I but don't the, think the, so. the land trust that owns it, Samus Land, I don't think they have any plans to do anything with it. Yeah, it won't turn into condos. No, no, it's such a weird shaped parcel, <laughs> it actually. Is really weird it's just a lot. really strange shaped building. <laughs> the whole plot of land it's on is just this little pie, this little triangular thing. But yeah. Um, it was, uh, I remember when that building, because I had set foot in it like once or twice when it was Triangle, because mm -hmm. I lived really close to it. <clears throat> and then I remember I heard from uh, an engineer who used to work there. His name was Ben Goldfarb. I don't know where he is now, but I talked to him. He said, oh, yeah, the building's like, you know, the, the owners like basically suddenly just closed it by surprise. Like literally the, the engineers showed up one day and like, you know, there was like a note, like, yeah, we're, you know, moved to Montana or something like that. The, the original owner just like showed up with a U-Haul and just like crowbarred everything out of the out of the walls and just took all the gear and like moved to Montana like overnight. Just wow. Like, we're done. The studio, it was the middle of the summer and they still had a year to go on the lease. Oh my gosh. And, um, <laughs> and you know, and somehow I got wind of it. Then, you know, I, yeah. I called up Chris Hanzik. We had just done the Deep Six record. Now I was only in a band. Yeah. He was the engineer. Right. right. Uh, and I was in Skin Yard and we were in the Deep Six sessions. But I knew <laughs> that Chris had lost his studio space because he had an earlier version of Reciprocal in the Interbay area here. Right. It only lasted like a year or less until his building got sold and he lost right. his space. And that was right. the first the first Reciprocal recording, which was where Green Rivers Come On Down oh, yeah. and the Accused's Martha Splatterhead EP and a oh, couple other. God. You know, he had a few bands from that year. It was like 84 yeah. that he had recorded in that period and then suddenly he was like out of a studio yeah. again so for about a year year and a half he didn't have anywhere to record other than he was like an outside engineer he worked at ironwood whatever sure. and i got wind that the triangle studio space was suddenly vacant <laughs> nobody knew where the owner had gone with the gear it was empty and yeah. it was just a mystery 
Yeah. So I got the key. I managed to get the key from Ben Goldfarb, and we took a look at it, and then yeah. we found out who's the landlord. We got to get a hold of the landlord. <laughs> well, well, you know, and so I had to get a hold of the landlord. His name was Sam Israel. He lived in Eastern Washington. Yeah. He hadn't been in Seattle in like twenty years or something crazy, <laughs> you know. And he controlled this land trust that owned all these buildings. He's right. an old guy, and they had all this, all these buildings all over Seattle, which they still do. Samus Land. They're a huge, a huge uh, real estate owner still, as far as I know. That's awesome. Um, and so I got a hold of the guy on the phone, and I explained, like, well, look, you don't know who I am, but there's this building you own, yeah. and the client has disappeared, <laughs> and we'd like to move into the building, you know, or I mean, yeah. the tenant, I mean, not client, you know. And yeah, yeah. And, and he was like, well, I'm, okay, well, you know, so I had to find, he said, well, you got to find the old guy and get him to write a letter assigning you it's authorizing you to assume his lease you know so i had to track down the guy bill stuber was his name i had to track him down in montana somehow i got his phone number and got a hold of him and said look here's what we're doing we want to and he was like yeah you can have it go ahead but i'll do yeah whatever you want you know and so we washed his hands yeah we he totally washed so he had some kind of midlife crisis and just decided he didn't want to be in the studio business anymore he was losing money or something i can understand yeah you know he just like he just snapped one day and just literally just took all the gear and left the state you know, oh, so so we had to get a letter from him, and and uh, <laughs> you know, and I got the landlord. To, so Chris Chris Hansick and I basically assumed his lease for the rest of the year because it was a year by year thing, and and we moved into the building and with all of Chris's gear and a little bit of my gear. I said, look, yeah. I found you a building. Can I be your partner? Yeah, you know, because I've got clients who want me to take them out of my basement. Yeah, and you've got gear that used to be in this other studio you had. So let's get. And so we had the eight track recorder, the Atari machine. <laughs> The and, one that uh, was in the EMP, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was Chris Hansick's old eight track oh machine, God. and he he eventually sold it to me. And um, <laughs> you know that was that was how we got our start in that triangle building. It was very strange. For a couple yeah. of years, people would show up looking for their tapes oh, God, from Triangle, from the old studio. We didn't have them. Right. It was empty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I recorded a record here in 1983, and I wondered if you still had oh, the. You know, we're just like, mm, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. You know, like mm, okay. Some guy came looking for his piano at one point. Whoa. Like, uh. <laughs> this was like three or four years later. I never realized that that, 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 that was how it um, swapped out, you know, how it turned into reciprocal. It was very weird, actually. Yeah, it was kind of weird. It was kind of weird because I lived like a couple blocks away. And the, the, yeah. real, the real irony is like the month the studio opened, I had to move. And I ended up like way up in the U District somewhere. <laughs> like literally the month we had a yeah. studio in Ballard, I was no longer two blocks away right. from the studio. But whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a strange story. Yeah, um, that is so funny. It's, <laughs> well, it's inter- I think it's always interesting, you know, like I know the history fairly well of, of this city just from osmosis and hanging out with everybody for so many 30 years or whatever. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm learning the, I've been learning the Portland history for 25 years oh my God. or something. And yeah. that's a whole different thing. With, it is. Like Northwestern where they did like Louie Louie and stuff like that that you, know, you, you talk to older engineers you start learning stuff and it's kind of fascinating to see i mean because it was a different landscape when you know even if you wanted a a, a demo in quotes you know you couldn't even knock it out in your house very easily no. back in the day because no, there weren't very many things you could even record on no even cassette decks was like you know <laughs> my first multi-track was two cassette decks and a y cable yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know i'd like so run two channels into one, one and copy yeah. them to the other cassette deck and then record the you know the oh, left yeah. channel would you know ah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh 
Yeah, that was like early multi-tracking in like 1974. Exactly. Uh, in my, my basement, you know, and each time you did it, the speed change would get like, because one machine was slightly faster than the other, so the Boy. pitch would go up each time. Then this would get like louder and louder. Oh, yeah. So you'd end up with like four or five channels mixed together on one side, and then <laughs> the latest channel would be on the other side yeah. of, of whatever was the last pass you did. Oh, that's funny. Mm. I had a little Radio Shack mixer that ran on a 9-volt battery. Oh, bonus. that to... To you bounce were smart. You had a mixer. I, I, I built a mixer wow. when I was in high school. Ooh. Like a passive summing. You know. I hate to tell you, but I did the same thing, and it's down in the basement you right now. You still have it? I still have it. Oh, nice. It's hilarious. I wish I kept all that stuff. Oh, it's my first mixer. It's literally just some pots and some switches. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like I was like, it was like labeled with you know that label tape, the sticky label tape with the, the little thing you click the little embossed yeah. thing and you'd like stick it on oh, there. Yeah, yeah, it's covered with that. Mine was all sharpie and on a piece of wood or something Ooh. like <laughs> press board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got the the one of the interesting things interesting things about you is that you've got an electrical engineering degree, um, years ago, and is that. I did. I graduated with a BSEE from the University of Washington in 1980. Yeah. Do you feel like that was like a good, gave you a sort of a grounding, at least in like signal flow and electronics and stuff that helped you as an engineer? Well, no, the irony is that actually when I was in college, I majored in electric power. Right. I didn't major in audio. They weren't even really, they weren't even, in the late 70s, nobody was interested in audio in college. They (laughs) did, they, you know, you get like one course in it and then like, oh yeah, whatever, that's it. Now we're going to, you know, now you're going to Explain DBs to yours. Yeah. I mean, everybody was either getting into digital, like where the the sort of digital end of the, 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 electrical yeah. engineering thing was getting really strong then and, and then it was like you know you're either going to go into computers with this in some way mm-hmm. or you're going to go into like something else like electric power mm-hmm. and you know it was audio was just like no one cared about it yeah and um so i majored in electric power and ended up working at the naval shipyard in bremerton for two and a half years oh yeah uh and you know i learned a lot about aircraft carriers and i learned a lot <laughs> about you know uh aircraft power systems because aircraft carriers have separate power systems for the airplanes really and airplanes a lot of them run uh at least military ones they run it um you know we have 60 cycle power that Mm -hmm. we use for um for everything in the our domestic world 50 cycles in other parts of the world right and here's an interesting thing if your ac power is running at a higher frequency the transformers you can make to transform from AC to DC and so forth can be a lot smaller and have less iron. Right. right. So avionics, which is uh, the term for aviation power, uh, a lot of it runs, at least back then, this was like 40 years ago, but I mean, avionics was running at 400 hertz. Wow. And so the aircraft carriers would have power systems for their pumps and motors and vent fans and whatnot that was all 60 hertz like we're used to where you have giant transformers. And then there'd be separate systems which were for strictly for the avionics, which was for the aircraft airplanes that take off and land yeah. on the on the aircraft carriers, and those are four hundred hertz. And you'd go by a compartment and you'd hear the transformers. Yeah, I was gonna say the transformers make this humming noise that's like a whine, you know, yeah. from the four hundred hertz right. of and harmonics uh, that they're and the transformers are smaller, but they make this crazy like audible <laughs> noise. <laughs> It's just, just a lot. It's, you know, I ended up learning a lot of this stuff. And you learn three-phase, which is this crazy mm-hmm. power system that most normal people don't ever have to think about. Right. So I retained all the knowledge having to do with transformers 
and frequencies yeah. and so forth, which helped me a lot because I do everything with a spectrum analyzer. Right. right. I've always carried these audio control spectrum analyzers around this. with me. Yeah. Uh, I have two of them. One's out here. One's in my house. Yeah. And um, you know they go with everywhere with me actually. Yeah. And uh, I've always enjoyed having the little picture of the whole frequency spectrum. It's like I have a, a live. Fourier transform in my brain, <laughs> which is like some obscure electro engineer, electrical yeah, yeah. engineering knowledge at this point, but I still remember what it meant. Yeah. So, and, and other than that, as far as the electronics, I had to teach myself most of it. Yeah. And, um, but it means I'm fairly fearless about problem solving because yeah. most problems are, you know, bad grounds and loose solder joints. You know, Generally, I mean, electro, <laughs> anything switches, things that break. Yeah, it's always the, something physical. You know, the physical. brushes with inside of a potentiometer. Yeah, no, and the, the thing is yeah. knowing how to do the problem, yeah. knowing how to eliminate variables mm -hmm. and track the signal flow, which is, yeah. that's something that's valuable for what I've retained. Because I've only retained about 2% of what I learned as an electrical engineer in yeah, college. You're not, it's all you're gone. Not, you're not dealing with three-phase No, I'm power. not dealing, <laughs> I can't remember how to do differential equations or any of that mm -hmm. nonsense. It's like, but I know how to follow a schematic and I know right. what what the things do and i know what i can fix and what i can't right you know when is it time to call in a professional yeah <laughs> you mentioned earlier when we were walking around the studio that you like repair your own guitar amps or modify them whatever constantly i love oh, tubes tubes are great i learned yeah. i had to teach myself tubes like this is the beautiful thing yeah. if you're a, a tube geek um there are these books from the 40s and 50s the rca there's one that rca made called the radiotronics designer handbook mm -hmm. and the whole first couple chapters is like a primer on this is how tube circuitry works. Right. And it's written for the idiot. <laughs> and then there's a whole section of like examples of typical circuits. And right. you look in there and you're like, well, there's the Fender Champ circuit, you know, like a, they copied it out of this book. Right. You know, Everybody, and uh, everybody's and, reference. Yeah. Everybody yeah. was using that as a reference in the yeah. 40s. That was yeah. like the reference, you know, and you can find this book anywhere. And then yeah. the RCA, the tube uh the tube um, guides that you know that have like a page for every tube. Right. You know what I mean? I actually know how to read that stuff. Yeah. So, um, working on tube amps is like working on like an old pickup truck. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like old technology. It's really easy to get in and get your hands dirty. You know, there's yeah. like the, the components are so few. It's kind of magic that they were able to do so much <laughs> with so few components. Yeah. You know. It's like, well, here's the engine, here's the piston, here's the spark plug, here's the distributor. Yeah. You know, and here's the carburetor. Well, that's kind of how an old, like, you know, an old yeah. Fender baseman from the 60s is. That's kind of how the circuit is. True. So I kind of enjoy that aspect of it. It's it's real, you know, get your hands dirty kind of stuff. And, I, and watching you play last night, playing guitar, I was like remembering back to first seeing you play like in Skin Yard. And I was, I know. Oh boy. And I was, but the thing I've always, especially back then, the thing that was really interesting about you was that your your tone wasn't shrill. Like remember, eighties guitar amps and and high gain pickups and circuits. Everything was about shrillness to me. I like am the, always tar shop. You know, I'm always on the lookout for the pain frequency. Yeah, which is usually some variation on two and a half k. <laughs> exactly, you know what right? I mean. And it's usually like a little sliver of a of a whistly peak. Mm -hmm. And a lot of guitar tones literally have this whistly tone. Oh yeah. And it's really interesting if you show people. I'll do this thing with EQ where I'll like I'll basically I'll turn the Q up to ten. Yeah. So it's just a spike, and I'll turn it to like plus fourteen, and I'll sweep it up and down the frequency spectrum. Yeah. And while we're listening to like a, a you know a really 
loud distorted electric guitar and there's a spot you sweep it up and down and there's a spot where literally suddenly the meter goes shooting into the full red (laughs) and everyone in the room like clamps their hands over their ears and you're like and you look at everything's in there and you you kind of go that's the pain frequency that's where there's a whistly resonant spike in the sound right that is not musical Right. There's nothing right. musical about it. It's an artifact of the interaction of the pickups with the tube circuitry that right. just generates this spurious whistling tone. Yeah. And people don't realize it's there until you remove it. Right. So you notch it out, reverse it, <laughs> minus 14, whatever. Yeah. It's like a literally just a, a little knife slice in the audio yeah. spectrum. And you say, okay, and you switch it on and off. And as soon as you do that, yeah. you switch it back on, everyone hears it now. They go, oh, my God, there it is. (laughs) You suddenly hear this, and you remove it out. And so basically, if you can find these painful resonant spikes that are non-musical and notch them out carefully, not too much, or it gets to sound unnatural, you can make it sound dull because it's part of this. Part of the tone is having that. Mm-hmm. Your ear is used to hearing a guitar and hearing these little shrill things, but yeah. you can get that under control, and it allows you to turn the guitar up much louder in the mix right. without hurting your ears. Right. Suddenly, you're like, oh, you know, because you know, you get a mix and you hear it, and it's like everything's real tinny, and there's all this shrill stuff going yeah, on. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, it's just not fun to listen to. It's painful. Right. Well. You couldn't really do this that easily with analog EQ. You can do it with digital EQ. You can zero right in on the frequencies that are non-musical. Tight, tight cuts like that are and, digital, I've noticed. Yeah, you can yeah. you can notch out the problem frequencies, and it allows you to turn up the nice frequencies much yeah. louder in the mix without it suddenly fighting with everything. Right. And, uh, and you know, I'm really sensitive to that in my tone as, as a guitar player. Right. I, I know what a shitty guitar sound sounds like, and that's not what I want. <laughs> I want a nice round distortion yeah. that's got some sustain, but that you can still hear the picking and it's mm-hmm. not hurting anyone's ears. Yeah. Here's the thing I learned actually yeah. about basic tube circuits, the typical tube circuit that is used in the preamp of mm-hmm. most tube amps. Each time your signal goes through each tube stage right. in the preamp of your amp, it flips the signal 180. Then the right. next stage it flips it back and then the next stage it flips it back. So say you've got a Fender Twin. Mm-hmm. It's got an extra tube stage in one channel, which is the reverb mixer. Right. Tube. It allows the reverb to get mixed into the signal. Like a buffer. Yeah. And yeah. that flips the signal, the phase. So, you know, when, when you're plugged into like the clean channel and the reverb channel in, say, a Fender Twin, right. one's 180 out of phase with the other. Oh, weird. Uh, and so if you're like combining two amps together, it's a guess like how many tube stages has this Marshall got versus this right. Fender that I got here. So, right. you know, the two speakers may be completely out of phase with each other when you combine them together. So the amps next to each other. Yeah, and if you're putting them next to each other, the air, the air in the room is like sucking and pulling. Oh, and it's God. like, it's much yeah. better. To, so I always have yeah. the phase flip speaker cable. So instead of just flipping it on the console, I can yeah. actually flip the phase in the room, in the air, air, you know, before I record it. It's actually (laughs) valuable. This is just one of those things you just like, you know, when you, when you figure it out, you're like, oh, why didn't I think of this years ago? Oh yeah. You mentioned problem solving earlier and that's that sort of thing where you just, there's so many things to be aware of, you know, when you're recording uh, an artist and, and, you know, every instrument has its own things that can go wrong. Oh my God. Yes. And it's just amazing when you, if you stumble across something like that that you're not expecting. It should be all just, just like it wait, should be all correct. Stop know? the session. Wait, <laughs> something's freaking me out here. What oh, yeah. is the what's going yeah. on? You know, am I losing my mind? You know, and yeah. it always turns out to be some weird thing that oh. nobody knew was happening. You know, 
Oh, it's massive. You know, this is one thing I retained from, from college was my basic understanding of acoustics mm-hmm. and my basic understanding of electronics. It's like I know Ohm's law like the back of my <laughs> E equals IR, you know what I mean? comes yeah. in handy. I know the resistor color code. I memorized it early. Yeah. And, uh, and then like the basic acoustics, which is that high frequencies are like a laser beam. Right. Low frequencies diffuse around corners. They're almost omnidirectional. Right, right. And it's in all the variations in between for the middle frequencies. So when I'm like positioning mics on a drum kit, and I have to show interns this all the time because they know which mics I like to use. And I go, okay, go out there. And, you know, they'll set up the mics. And then I'll go out and I'll change the where all of them are pointing. Because yeah. say the mics here, I'll, you know, it's at the rack tom, but it's kind of pointed in a certain way. And I'll go, look. You want to not get hi-hat into these mics. You don't want the ride cymbal getting into the floor-tom mic. You don't right. want the hi-hat getting into the rack-tom mic or the snare mic any more than you have to. And think of these as flashlights. Yeah. Think of these microphones as flashlights. So you're pointing this mic, and whatever the light is illuminating, that's what the mic is going to pick up. Right. So just look at the way this mic is pointing. So you got a mic, it's pointing at the rack-tom, but it's like pointing across it at the hi-hat. And you're like, no, right. no, no, move it over here. So oh, it's yeah. not pointing at the hi-hat. You know what I mean? Simple right. things like that that you don't really think about oh. until you think about right. this is directional. You want it pointing at the things you want and not pointing at the things you don't want. Like putting the, the hi-hat mic so it's in the sh- the, the hi-hat is, the snare's in the shadow of the hi-hat, so to speak. Right, so you're so, mainly getting hi-hat yeah, and not snare. It's not, it's not, there's no way, it doesn't even, the mic can't even see the snare. Right. So, okay. That'll yeah, be exactly, good. exactly. There's it's another good. trick my friend, a friend of mine showed me a long time ago um, closed head, you know, kick drum, mm-hmm. and he goes, and we had like an RE20 or something, you know, he goes, oh, well, just don't point it at the head, point it across the head. You'll pick up more surface. I finally had a live sound guy point, point that out. It was Jim Anderson, actually, yeah. a sound man of some incredible pedigree here in town mm-hmm. who said to me, look, here's what you do, you know, because he gets that live. Sometimes people show up with no hole, and I'm always just like, oh, God, there's no hole in the kick drum. What the (laughs) hell? It's going to be a big washy, woomph, woomph sound. Right. You know, but that's the thing is apparently you put the mic on the floor pointing up across the heads, and you're thinking, well, it's going to get a lot of ride cymbal, but you can build a tunnel, you know, with some foam or whatever. Piano bench. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing, right? The piano (laughs) bench with some cloth over it or whatever you need to do. And uh, yeah, yeah, and then like, you know, if if the outer head is ringing too much, you know, and you don't want your kick drum to go boom, boom, you know, you can like take a little pillow with a brick, totally lean it against the bottom of it a little bit, control the resonance. Talk about all my techniques. All the techniques, I know. It's like, we've been doing this a while. (laughs) Yes. We've all independently discovered the wheel, you know, in in various ways. Uh, And... um, You know, so I'm not as as terrified of a kick drum with no hole as I used to be. It's still, if yeah. it's a heavy rock band with distorted guitars, it's like, look, yeah. you want the kick drum to cut through those nasty, bright, shrill guitars. I need a tack. Right. You know, let's, and here I've got a head already with a hole in it. Let's just swap right. the head and then we'll put your but head with your logo back on it after If it's someone done. that wants to sound like the Sonics or someone that's playing jazz, Then it's fine. It's great. I did the yeah. Sonics in here and they yeah. didn't have a head with no, or they had a head with no hole, but See? the guy was wailing on the drums <laughs> and it was great. Right. You know, See? it was killer, you know, yeah. but I mean, but at the typical metal band, it's like, no, no. you need that attack or you're not going to hear the kick drum through those guitars. Right. Oh my God, the Sonics, they were like such fans of history. That sounds fun. That's a fun band, man. Oh my God. They were characters. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's like a lot of characters floating around this town. Yeah. And your town as well. Oh Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
it's kind of the joy of it. Is it, is it fun working with something like that where they've been around for so many years? It's a little intimidating. Yeah. You know what I mean? The funny yeah. thing is I've worked with like at least one of their grandchildren has been in the studio. <laughs> grandchildren. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Like, okay, three generations. I ain't getting any younger myself, I guess, you know. Like, okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so, yeah, so the context here for those listening in podcast land is Larry and I were just at the Central Saloon in right. Seattle last night where my band... MKB Ultra was playing right before Chris Novoselic's band Giants in the Trees Right uh, at the Central Saloon. Now, Chris probably has not played in the Central. Of course, it was the Central Tavern back in the day. He probably hasn't played in the Central since, you know, no later than the early 90s. Yeah, you know, because if even, right? if even then, because yeah. by the time Nirvana got famous, they weren't playing the Central Saloon. Yeah. So it would have been no later than 1991. Uh, yeah. And... Um, you know, my band Skinyard used to play in the Central Tavern back oh, yeah. when it was one of the only three clubs in Seattle that you could, you know, that an original band could play in in the, in the mid-80s. I mean, we opened for Faith No really? More in like <laughs> 1987, I think it was. You oh, know, my the, God. The original lead singer, I think they had like a couple indie records on Mortem or something like that. Right. And, you know, they were a big indie band. And I'm pretty sure we opened for the Flaming Lips there, too, around the same time. And oh, again, funny. they were like a weird indie band. Yeah, you know, Chris Band, um, um, Giants, Giants in the, in the trees. trees. Yeah, you helped them. You went down and helped them set up some recordings. Yeah, because they were recording on their own, and they had like a whole setup in this in this in this house. You know that they were yeah. recording in, and you know, I, I and they're kind of novices at it, but they were like enthusiastic yeah. novices, and you know, they had all this gear, and you know, the drummer had like this. He was using sonar or something mm -hmm. like that, and had some PCs and some interfaces. And yeah. Chris had some preamps and a smattering of. He had a closet full of old microphones and mic stands, <laughs> and you know there was all this bass gear. And sure. Ray Prestigard, he's like he's got like ten different like weird hollow body, you know, handmade instruments that he plays. Oh, cool. You know these little lap steels and dulcimers yeah. and all these kind of. You know he's got a whole. It's just into that stuff. And yeah. so there's all this stuff they had, but they didn't. You know, they had to sort of learn from trial and error how to actually record themselves. Yeah. You know, so I'd be like, okay, no, 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 wait a minute. First, you got to tune the drums a little bit, and then you got to put the mics here. You know, yeah. as long as you put the mics here, it'll work. Yeah. You know, we don't have time to be experimental because I can't come down here all the time. Right. And, you know, but here's if you do this, it'll work. You know, and so he got, and then they took that and, and ran with it, and then you know, I started. I basically ended up mixing. The record, right. you know, that they recorded. And, you know, at first it was like, you guys really should record this one again. You know, the drums are all blown out. The preamps are oh, all in no. the road. Like, no, no, no. you got to like the meters. you got to, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, and and then they, they got really good at it. And also, you know, they'd record the song again a couple months later. And be, oh, we're way better playing the song now. Because the band itself was, was becoming a band. Jamming. Yeah. You know, where they were just kind of jamming. And then, well, mm -hmm. let's write a few songs. We'll record them. And then, like, a few months later, oh, my God, we changed that arrangement. It's way better. <laughs> so, you know, it took them a That's, while. But eventually, yeah. there was an album. And yeah. it actually sounds really good for a home-recorded record. I ended up mastering it, too. Because, yeah. as usual, what happens is they sent it to some expensive guy in LA and the guy squashed the life out of it and then I, I was like you know wait a minute let me master a song it'll if you don't like yeah. it it's free 
And of course, yeah. they went with my master. That's you know, which this happened over and over again. Yeah. You know, and if you know, if people don't like it, I'm just like, okay, whatever, take it to somebody else. That's but pretty interesting. Does that happen a lot? It does. It's yeah. happened to me a number of times where I've basically had records where they send it to someone to master. Not Chris Hanzik. I send stuff to Chris yeah. Hanzik all the time. Yeah. But occasionally, people are like, oh, we've got like this guy. I'm like, yeah, okay, this guy. Okay, let me know what it sounds like. And it comes back, and it's like. My name's going to be on this? No, wait a minute. <laughs> Let me try mastering it myself. And if, you That's know, crazy. you can, I'll do it for free. Okay. Yeah. Just so we don't have to use this, you know, pay that guy off and then let me take a crack yeah, at yeah. it. I've done this a couple of times. Wow. It's like, I want, you know, yeah. if it's a record I'm really proud of, uh, I don't yeah. like it when people completely destroy it. Because mastering is a very, it's like mixing. It's a very unregulated Field. Anyone can buy a computer and an interface right. and some plugins and say, I'm a mastering engineer now. I read, also, the, I read Bob Katz's book. I'm a mastering guy. And it's just like, well, yeah. how, you can't buy ears. I'm sorry. No. You know, so I'm kind of, I'm really frustrated with, with mastering because of the number of times I've had to basically do a triage on yeah. somebody's record at oh, the last yeah. minute. Like, wait, we just spent like weeks in the studio and this is the master? Oh, yeah. Wait. Just okay. hold everything, you know. I'll fucking so by necessity, I had yeah. to learn how to how to do mastering <laughs> to like rescue these situations where somebody uh, had like sent it to somebody who had like terrible ears that apparently were drastically different from mine. I think there's also even with sometimes with with skilled mastering engineers, I think they have PTSD from their clients. No, I think that I, I think everybody they, keeps saying louder, louder, louder. Well, there's that. Yeah. That's true. And yeah. that's, the, I understand yeah. that. It's like, you can at least, you just say, look, just back it down a couple yeah, dB yeah. and run it again. And it's, you know, even the, the big shots are like, yeah. oh, really? Oh, that's, let oh me. it's one of, oh, great. You know, they're like, yeah, I they thought do. you wanted it smashed, you know? <laughs> Think of the guys doing major label, like system of a down records or whatever. Yeah, that are be just, just so loud. Yeah. They're yeah. like, when you tell them that you don't have to do that, they're just like, oh, yeah. thank you, you know? <laughs> but that's not the same as just being incompetent. No, no. You know I what I mean? That. And it just frustrates me sometimes. So, you know, I don't want to gripe too much because i no. know some people are really good at it and yeah but yeah mastering is tough you know because you can spend like weeks and weeks on a record and then somebody can screw it up in like a day <laughs> and then it's like no yeah. wait a minute uh you know and as far as i'm concerned i'm gonna i'm gonna take something i got from Stephen st croix years mm -hmm. ago and this is a guy who used to write for mix right. magazine he's one of the best writers that they had yeah because really he always had something really thought-provoking and one of the things he wrote and i wish i knew where this column was because it was the best column he ever wrote to me it was like it, it rang huge alarm bells in my in my head which was basically he explained like literally everything you do with the signal of any kind of processing or any kind of conversion or whatever yeah. is lowering the resolution a little more yeah. You're making it a little blurrier every time you run it through anything. Oh, yeah. And it's all about, you know, resolution is basically like clarity. And, and I think of it in terms of, and I used to think of it in terms of um, like a photo negative. Mm -hmm. If you have a photographic negative and it's like, picture like, you know, some kind of camera format that had like a giant negative. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the one when you print the, the the picture and you blow it up to like, you know, three feet by three feet, yeah. everything's in crystal clear detail. Right. Instead, you had these little like 110 cartridge cameras and 126 <laughs> cartridge, Remember but like those? a little tiny, uh, you know, the negatives were these little postage stamp right, size right. things. And if you tried to like, you could, you could get those developed and they'd make a nice little three inch by three inch photo. Right. But if you tried to blow it up, 
it's you could see that it was all blurry. The resolution right. was not there because the negative, it's like you're down to the level of the atoms and the molecules in the mm -hmm. in the photographic negative, and it can only hold so much detail because right. it's a tiny little thing. And um, it's the same thing I try to explain to people like, the inner, the inner part of a vinyl record is not going to sound as good as the outer yeah, part. Right, right. Because the music is squeezed into this much smaller surface area. There's less land. There's <laughs> less space for the grooves, and it's the yeah. detail's not going to be there. Yeah. So don't put the loudest song at the end of the side. And, you know, so for me, every time somebody talks about mastering in the analog domain, mm -hmm. you know, where they take, like, a digital master and they run it out through a converter to some, like, you know, manly thing or whatever, and then back into a converter, back into the digital world... I'm just like, oh, okay, so right off the bat, you're blurring right. and smearing the whole thing. Right. You're, like you're making it more lo-fi as part of your modus operandi. Yeah. I don't roll with that. That's not something that I feel like should be like the first thing you reach for. But on the other hand, I have worked with mastering. You know, I work with one quite frequently who does generally use an analog path and it does sound better. Oh, yeah. Some so, people swear by it. They've so got the gear. Got God bless them. They've got the converters. They've got yeah. the, the stuff's high resolution. High it's top of the line. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, you know, analog still has its place, but just not on everything. Right, right. I mean, that's the thing. You can make something sound worse, and it's a resolution issue. Yeah, it's almost you like know? an effects unit at this point. It's yeah. Like, oh, that tape machine over there, that's an effects unit. Do we need it? Maybe yeah. we do, maybe we don't. Like the whole magic sauce is because yeah. we're hitting tape. Yeah. It's like, well, no, the magic sauce is not sucking. Yeah. yeah. You know, and you know, if the tape is, you know, the tape is not going to make or break it. You know no. what I mean? It's like, and in fact, if we don't use the tape, we can probably get the record done a lot faster and you can spend a lot more time getting good performances right. instead of like going back and punching in things and taking right. hours and hours dealing with punch-ins. But, it's an know, interesting. This is the thing. It, it, recording is all about time. That's almost the <laughs> most important ingredient in the studio is time. Yes. You know, I mean, beyond a certain minimal level of technical competency from the engineer and a certain minimal level of functional recording yeah. you know, gear, you know, f recording functionality. Yeah. Uh, the most important ingredient is time. Always. It's like, are you rushed? Do you have time to play the song right? Do you have time to do another take? Right. Do you have time to relax and like calm your brain down and get a good performance? Yeah. You know, or are you fighting with the gear and fighting with the recording methodology the right. whole time? Right. Uh, you don't want to be doing that. You want to be able to concentrate on your art. And the more that the technology gets out of your way, yeah. the better a performance you're going to make. And the sound, you know, sure, the recording methodology affects the sound, but I think the performance is a much more important part of it. Yeah. And I think the time spent is a much more important ingredient than this or that particular piece of equipment. Larry, well, it's know, been a pleasure. Yeah, but thank you so much. Indeed. Awesome. I Yay. will shake your hand. I'm shaking his hand. You can't see yes, it. Yes, this is the handshaking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I haven't seen Larry in a while. It's true. I just don't get to Portland that often. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, 